grateful for being involved today. Um, can't imagine life without Jesus. And you know it's even more powerful as I was listening to that song, just uh, the thought that crossed my mind is that Jesus couldn't imagine himself without us. Um, you think about what led him to Calvary. <laughs> he couldn't imagine life without you. And today, we get to hear from him. Amen? How has your week been, by the way? Yeah? Uh, maybe we can do another visual thumb scale on a, on a sc scale of, well, I, I could forget about this week, to, uh, man, let's have another one of those, you know? Uh, how was your week this week? How are we doing? Yeah? Okay? Amen. Praise the Lord. You know, the truth is that even if your week was down here, the week isn't over yet. Amen? <laughs> it's the Sabbath day, and on the Sabbath we get to remember that God cr could create something out of nothing. So maybe your week gave you nothing, but Jesus has everything for you today. You know, this Sabbath uh, we get to conclude um, a pretty drawn-out sermon series, Let Him Hear. This is part eight now. Let him hear part eight. We've been going through Revelation 1, 2, and 3. We've been looking at the seven churches, or the, the messages to the seven churches of Revelation. And the message this morning is entitled, Let him hear part eight, the door still closed. Last week we, we listened to what Jesus said to the church of Philadelphia. You remember that? And Jesus portrayed himself as having the key of David. He's, he's the one who rightfully sits on the Davidic throne, the messianic throne. He's the anointed one, and he has this key. He can open any door, he can shut any door, and he has set before the people an open door. Right? You remember that? It was a door of opportunity. And here is Jesus, who has given us an open door. He has the key to open any door, but they're actually, in reality, truth be told, there is one door he cannot open. Let him hear part eight, the door that's still closed. Friends, I really want to encourage you as we enter into this study just to have a very prayerful heart because I believe that there is a decision that some of us need to make. Today. Actually, all of us. We all need to make a decision today. But some of us need to make a decision of such import that it can open the door that Jesus cannot open himself. I know, I'm kind of starting out heavy. Is that okay? <laughs> but I want to give us just a little bit of sense that, hey, there's a message of urgency here, and it's a message to the church of Laodicea. All right, we're going there. But before we do, let's bow our heads for prayer. Oh, Father, you've been so faithful to us. Now, some of us, coming from the weeks that we've had, even saying that takes faith. <laughs> but Lord, by faith, whether we've seen it or not, we know that you have been so faithful to us. And God, right now, we just want to cast our burdens, lay our distractions, do whatever it takes to give you full access to our hearts and minds. We want to open up the pages of Scripture, not just because it's the thing to do right about now, but because we need to hear from Jesus. God, our souls are hungry. Some of them are starving. And so we need fresh bread. And Father, I just personally ask that you would hide me in the shadow of your goodness. Lord, we really long to hear from you. So we're praying for the the outpouring of your Holy Spirit that you said is the spirit of truth, that you said is the one who guides us into all truth. So please be poured out today, not because we deserve him, but because we need him. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, let everyone say amen. All right. Let's get into it. Revelation chapter 3, last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 3. And maybe some of you have this message memorized. Here it is, Revelation chapter 3. This is the last of the seven churches. To each church, Jesus has been speaking. To each church, Jesus has been honest. To each church, Jesus has been pleading and giving specific counsel and instruction. 
And now to the church of Laodicea. Now, interesting thing that we need to know about Laodicea. You know, all of these, all of these churches were in very real cities in Asia Minor. That was a province in Rome. And of all of these cities, Laodicea was kind of on the last of a postal circuit. Okay, so a last of a circuit. And Laodicea was a very prosperous city. Laodicea was a very wealthy city. And they were proud of it. Okay? Laodicea was a very interesting place. In fact, it, it was so wealthy that it, it became a very great banking center of the area. It stored a lot of gold there. Okay? Interesting thing is that the way that it made this industry, one of its main uh, sources of income was a certain uh, material. It was a black, glossy wool that they, that they were able to put into various products and they were able to export all around the world. And so, very interesting that they, they had this industry, a garment industry of sorts, so they stored gold because of this wealthy industry of garment making. And in addition to this, they had a very well-known medical school, and uh, one of their famed treatments was an a eye treatment. It, it was a treatment for eye disease, and it was made of this powder that they called Phrygian powder that came from some roots in the local area. And so they were known for their eye salve, their special eye medicine, okay? Now, for some of you who already know what the message to Laodicea uh, indicates, you know that these, all these things about the city itself actually have some correlation to the counsel that Jesus is going to give. And so here's Laodicea, this very wealthy, this very prosperous, this very self-sufficient city, in fact, what's interesting is that in the year A.D. 60, they were so proud. They, the epitome of the city's pride came in the year A.D. 60, where there was this great huge earthquake that affected the entire area. And the Roman Empire, uh, they, they sent a whole bunch of financial assistance to the whole area. Laodicea, however, was the only city in the area that refused to take any financial assistance. Why? Because they had enough money. They were rich, and they were proud of it. They were completely self-sufficient. They didn't need anybody's help. And what's interesting is that the character of this city, the self-sufficient character, began to be reflected, apparently, in the church of that city. And so here's Jesus, and he has a message specifically for the self-sufficient church. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. If you're there, say amen. All right, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, the Bible says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the what? The Amen. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now here's Jesus, and he calls himself the Amen. When you say Amen, what, do you know what you mean when you say Amen? <laughs> Amen is a Hebrew expression that simply means truth. Uh, maybe you've, in colloquial, uh, someone says something that you agree with and you say, true that, you know, <laughs> that's true, all right? This is the Hebrew expression for amen. In Greek, it's transliterated, amen. And you notice sometimes in the Gospels where Jesus says, truly, truly, I say unto you, the literal Greek is amen, amen, okay? So when Jesus says, I am the amen, he says, I'm the truth. I am the truth. And then he says, I'm the faithful and true witness, meaning I not only see the truth, but I call it like it is too. Okay? So Jesus sees it all. Jesus sees it all even better than you and I. Do you believe that this morning? In fact, Jeremiah 17 verse 9 tells us that the, the heart is deceitfully wicked. It's, it's deceitful. That is, we trick ourselves into thinking that we're better off than we actually are. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm the amen, I'm the truth, I'm the faithful and true witness. And then there's this third thing, I'm the beginning of the creation of God. Now the Greek there is arche, which could mean first in sequence, but here in this context, we know that Jesus is not just the first of created beings, no. He's actually the source of created beings. He is the ruler, the initiator of creation itself. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things came into being through that Word. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, we find there that Jesus also is the firstborn of all creation. Well, He wasn't the first thing to be created, no. He was the 
preeminent one. He was the ruler over all creation. So here is Jesus. He says, I am truth. I see it like it is. I tell it like it is. But even if you feel hopeless after that, I'm the one who can create and recreate like it is. All right. So here's Jesus. He says, no, I want you to have a sense of hope. You may feel like your knees are trembling because I see things maybe that you don't. But remember, I'm the beginning of the creation. If you feel like you've got nothing, that's okay, because I can recreate. So here's Jesus. And what is his message? The message from the faithful and true witness, verse 15. The Bible says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Whoa, slow down, Jesus. <laughs> you know, in the other messages, Jesus kind of starts out with like, hey, I know your works, your faith, your patience, your love, you know, all these things. And then he gets to, you know, the, the criticism. But here, right away, Jesus gets into it. Straight rebuke. I know your works. And what, what's the repeated theme, the repeated phrase in those two verses, verses uh, 15 and 16? What, what words do you see repeated there? Cold or hot? Hot or cold? You're neither cold. I wish you were cold or hot. What's interesting about Laodicea, just kind of going back to the historical context here, Laodicea sat between two cities, or at least its neighboring cities. There was Hierapolis to the north and Colossae to the east. Interestingly, Hierapolis, it, it had its own hot springs there. Colossae had its own cold springs there. But Laodicea didn't have any springs of its own. <laughs> In fact, they had to have water imported via an aqueduct that the Roman government set up. But by the time the water got to them, it wasn't hot, nor was it cold. It was lukewarm. Lukewarm. Very interesting. And this, apparently, is drawing a spiritual picture of the condition of Laodicea. Jesus is using this. Hey, you guys are familiar with hot, you're familiar with cold, and you're familiar with lukewarm. Well, really, right now, you're pretty lukewarm. Now, what, what's the deal with this? In the past, I thought to myself, cold, hot. Oh, maybe Jesus prefers us to be all for him, fiery hot, or all against him, fiery or icy cold, right? But what I'm discovering is that it's not that Jesus is gauging our fervor for him, but our impact for him. See, the thing is that hot water is medicinal. Cold water is refreshing. Lukewarm water is neither. In other words, it has no healing or helpful impact. And Jesus is saying, look, you don't have any springs of your own. And you've, your Christianity, your walk has become tepid. Your walk has become ineffective. It, it's not therapeutic at all. There's no potency there. And what's sad is that this condition actually makes Jesus want to vomit. Did you catch that phrase? At the end of verse 16, it says, so, well, I'll read verse 16. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Woo! That's a pretty emotive picture. <laughs> uh, I'll be the first to tell you, I hate throwing up. Okay? <laughs> Like, when I'm sick and I have a stomach bug, I will do anything to make sure I do not heave. Because it's, it, yeah, okay, we don't need to go there, I guess. But, but apparently Jesus is so turned by uh, Laodicea's ineffection, or ineffectiveness, that it makes him want to spew whatever it is they are out of his mouth. What's the deal? What's going on there? Let's keep reading. He continues to describe what it is that he means by lukewarm. And verse 17 says, Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. Does this sound like the city? Does this sound like, like you know, a repetition of history, so to speak? So here, remember, uh, they, they refused the help of the Roman government when, when that earthquake hit, but now the church apparently is saying, hey, I've got what I need. I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So on top of their lukewarmth, 
there's arrogance. (laughs) On top of their ineffectiveness for the gospel, they've added spiritual pride. The self-assessment they say that of themselves is that I'm rich. I've become wealthy. I have need of nothing. They're spiritually refusing help from the outside, or maybe we should rather say they're spiritually refusing help from above. What's interesting about that word rich, when they say in verse 17, I am rich, that's the same word that end time Babylon says of itself in Revelation chapter 18, excuse me. And so here, it's, it's the same term. It's the, we're, we're, we're confused here, just as end time Babylon. But notice the focus of their self-assessment. And when they say that I am rich, I am wealthy, and have need of nothing, there's a certain focus. They're focused on what they have, rather than on what Jesus wants to give. Did you notice that? They're, the complacency with what they already have of themselves is blinding them to their sensitivity of what Jesus really wants to give them. And so, could it be that the first step, the first step to lukewarmth, is actually this spiritual arrogance that says, I've, I've got what I need. I've got what it takes. Uh, the beliefs? Check. The day? Check. The diet? Check. Should I go on? <laughs> And so here they say, I've got it, I've got it. Don't worry about me. And, and what's interesting is that some of us are saying to yourselves, I'm glad I'm not them, right? Careful, because that's exactly what Laodicea would say. Okay? So it's this spiritual arrogance that really leads to a spiritual cluelessness. Okay? And Jesus, remember, he is the amen. He's the faithful and true witness, and he wants to tell us like it is. So here, let's just kind of slow down a second. What is it that really makes Jesus want to vomit? Yeah, we said it's, a, it's their lukewarm. It's their, it's their uh, ineffectiveness. But could it be that it's not... Here, let's say it like this. What makes Jesus want to vomit... Well, I really want to stop using that word. Is that okay? <laughs> what makes Jesus want to spew out is not apostasy. It's not heresy. It's not even blatant sin or wickedness. According to this passage, what makes him heave is a spiritual pride. And it's because it renders the church ineffective and ignorant of its its own need for grace. What can he do with that? When we've become so spiritually proud that we have no need of his grace, what can Jesus do with that? Well, he doesn't give up, praise the Lord. (laughs) He doesn't give up, even though it is very possible to, like we said, believe right, teach right, do right, live right. But when spiritual pride neutralizes our ability to have any saving or healing impact on people around us, that's what turns Jesus' stomach. And Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't leave us to just, "Ah, forget it, you're not going to listen anyway. (laughs) Jesus doesn't stop there. Verse 18, the message continues. What are the first two words in verse 18 in your Bible? I counsel. I counsel. Interestingly, when you look at that word counsel, in Scripture it's only used three other times. And the only three other times it's used is when it's talking about groups of people that are plotting together. Like the Pharisees plotting to kill Jesus. Or the Jews who are so upset that Saul is now preaching for the gospel, that they plot to try to kill Saul. This word counsel, it's actually counseling together. It's a reference to a mutual resolve, a group decision. But here it's in the positive. And so here Jesus is saying, hey, I'm counseling, I'm calling a group together to try to advise you in the right direction. Who is he counseling with? A, either he's counseling, he's trying to reason with Laodicea, or B, He's actually referencing the triune God. And he's saying, look, the heavenly council has gotten together. And this is the dream we've concocted. (laughs) This is the cure that we've come up with for a complacent church. So here is the council, the triune God, in verse 18. It says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. 
that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Is this good counsel, yes or no? Some of us aren't quite sure. What is this counsel all about? How, how is this supposed to help this spiritually proud people? And as we just kind of dig into what the counsel is of the triune God, we're, what we're going to find, we're just going to articulate. And to be honest with you, um, in the past, I've actually spent like a whole week looking at the message to the church of Laodicea. And so what we're going to try to do is in a compressed one single talk. What we're going to try to do is just try to hit the highlights together. But what we're going to see in this counsel that God gives, this counsel that Jesus gives to the Laodicean church, we're actually going to see, we're going to hit on three imperatives, three commands, three instructions, but really one ignition. Okay? All of the three things, they're really all trying to say one thing. And so here, we're starting with number one. So if you're taking notes, here's counsel number one. Counsel number one is to buy. B-U-Y, to buy, and specifically, to buy from Jesus. It's interesting, when, when this, this word here is, is introduced, to buy from me, this is marketplace language. This is the language of transaction. This is the language of an exchange, which means that whatever Jesus has to counsel us about involves giving him something so he can give us something. There's an exchange that's involved. We can't miss that. In, or, in other words, in order to receive all from Jesus, we must actually ourselves give all to Jesus. We can't uh, just allow ourselves to think that Jesus is going to give it, Jesus is going to give it, Jesus is going to give it. No, really it involves the question, are we going to give him? Are we going to give him our everything? And so it's not a sense of entitlement, it's, it's, it's the reality that, hey, Jesus has an exchange lined up for us. And the goods that he wants to exchange with us are gold, garments, and ISAV. Did you notice that in verse 18? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in a fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with ISAV that you may see. Do you remember what the city was known for? What we had talked about, that the city was known as a banking center. It had lots of gold in-house. And Jesus is saying, look, that's fool's gold. I got the real deal, okay? Buy from me. Buy from me. They, they had an industry where they made wool, and, and the, it was involved in different garments, of, and, and those things were exported all around. And Jesus is saying, look, you may be proud of your rich garments, but really, I've got the goods. You need my garments. They were known for their medical school. They, they healed eye diseases left and right, but they still themselves could not see. And so they needed real perspective, real wisdom. And all of these things, we could, we could cross-reference and do a huge study on how it really this gold is a representation of faith and how the garments are a representation of Christ's righteousness that are only obtained by faith. And how the eye salve that anoints us is really the anointing power of the Holy Spirit to give us true sight and true life. And here the point is, don't fool yourself any longer thinking that what you can manufacture is good enough. Don't fool yourself any longer thinking that you have all that you need because only I, Jesus says, only I have what you really need. That's why he says buy, but he also says buy from me. Did you notice that? I think that's the operative word right there. Jesus says, buy from me. Trade all this fool's gold for the real deal. He wants to invite us into a conversion experience. Friends, this is true, genuine conversion right here. This is what he's inviting them to. When he says, buy from me, he's saying, be converted. In fact, yesterday I was reading in a book, it's a devotional book, it's called In Heavenly Places, and, and the, the entry from yesterday was actually speaking directly about genuine conversion, and I, the statement says this, this is called In Heavenly Places, page 248, and the statement says, genuine conversion will teach us to hold fast our confidence in him who is our only hope. Now notice the articulation of what genuine conversion involves, because it involves riches, clothes, and, and sight. Here it is. 
By conversion, we join our weakness to God's strength, our ignorance to his wisdom, our unworthiness to his merits, our poverty to his boundless riches, our helplessness to his enduring might. Jesus is calling us to trade in your ISAB. You don't have wisdom, get mine. You don't have righteousness, get mine. You don't have faith. You don't have riches, get mine. He's calling them to genuine conversion. So that's imperative number one. That's, that's counsel number one. Buy from me. Counsel number two, it's in verse 19. And again, it might sound different, but it's really the same. In verse 19, he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Can you say amen to that? <laughs> Parents, are, you can resonate, right? <laughs> as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. But here's the imperative. Here's the counsel. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So, counsel number one is buy from me. Counsel number two is be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. In other words, to buy of Jesus is to be converted, to make a complete U-turn. That's the word repentance. This conversion experience, this turnaround, this repentance, I love the fact that it's coupled with this, this idea of be fervent. In other words, don't wait anymore. Get on the game. Get, get on the ball. Fire it up. Get zealous because you need repentance. In other words, this conversion must be experienced now. Don't wait any longer. There's a sense of fervency, of immediacy, and zeal. What's interesting to me is that in the seven messages to the seven different churches, there's only two churches that Jesus actually tells that he loves. And it's not to say that the other churches he doesn't love. <laughs> but it's here in Laodicea, and it's also in the message to Philadelphia, the very faithful church. Remember, the message to the church of Philadelphia, they didn't have any rebukes at all. But they were told that, you know what, God loves them. And then on the other side of the spectrum, there's Laodicea that has only rebukes, only criticism, and yet God says, I love you. Okay? Which means whether you're faithful or ineffective. <laughs> whether you're the missionary church or the lukewarm church, you are still the object of God's love. Amen. Praise the Lord that his love is everlasting. That's what scripture tells us. His love is everlasting and it endures forever. And so here, counsel number two is be zealous and repent. And I love the fact that it starts with therefore be zealous and repent. Remember what we said last week? When you see a therefore, you've got to ask, what's it? therefore, right? When verse 19 says, therefore be zealous and repent, it's on the basis of what reality? We are called to be zealous and repent on the basis of the previous phrase, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. In other words, our repentance is never motivated by fear. Let me say it again. Our repentance is never motivated by fear of consequence. Our repentance is always motivated by the fact that Jesus loves us with an everlasting love. Okay? So Romans 2, 4 says it's your kindness that draws us to repentance, that leads us to repentance. So counsel one, buy from me, Jesus says, and that's really a call to genuine conversion. Counsel number two, it's really saying the same thing. Be zealous and repent, just adding a sense of urgency and fervency to it. Counsel number three, it's later on, but I want us, we'll catch it here in just a second, but I want us to take this theme of the fact that Jesus loves us, that Jesus loves us. He really does love us because the language of this love intensifies in the very next verse. In the very next verse, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, the Bible says, Behold, I stand at the door, and do what? And knock. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I want to stop right here. Because what Laodicea doesn't realize is that Jesus is not inside. Do you notice that? Jesus is standing at the door and knocking, which means where is he? He's outside. Friends, this is the door that's still closed. 
While they feel their need of nothing and assume that Jesus is near, in reality, Jesus is outside, locked out. And the Old Testament background to this idea of someone knocking at the door, the Old Testament background is actually in a book called Song of Solomon, which is a love letter. And in Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2, the lover is locked out. And he's knocking for entrance. Where'd she go? Where did my wife go? And here Jesus is using that imagery of a lover locked out. And he's saying, look, I love you so much, guys. But here, I'm way out here. I'm way out here. And so he stands. He stands at the door. And he's knocking. And the, the, the rest of this verse, though it's not strictly in the command form, it's an invitation that's implied. There's an imperative that's implied. And notice in verse 20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and does what? And opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Here is counsel number three. Hear his voice and open that door. Hear his voice and open the door. So counsel number one, buy from me. Counsel number two, be zealous and repent. Counsel number three, hear his voice and open that door. I want us to see here in verse 20, when it says, if anyone hears my voice, the language of this message goes from collective, I'm speaking to the whole church, to individual, I'm speaking to your heart. Jesus has gotten, gone from the marketplace language of buying from me to the fireplace language of a candlelit dinner, okay? Jesus has gone from the public now to the personal, and he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door. In other words, what he's about to say here, you know, to, to open the door, what he's about to say, it requires personally hearing, and personally responding. No one else is going to open that door for you. Do you follow me today, yes or no? So Jesus is now getting very, very personal. And what he says here is, if anyone does open that door, I will come in to him and dine with him. Now here's the question. Here's the question we've got to ask, because this is, you know, this is all metaphoric language, so to speak. But what does it mean practically to open the door. What does it mean, practically speaking? You know, in, our, in, in Sabbath school, uh, be, before the mission report was given today, Denise quoted this passage from John chapter 1, verse 12, and you know it. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Here's a promise. You can become a child of God. You can have fellowship in the family of God upon what condition? Upon receiving him. So what is this idea of receiving? What, what does that mean? How do we practically open the door, so to speak? I would submit that what it means to open the door is simply this. It might sound too simplistic, but here's the word. It's surrender. It's surrender. Choosing with your will what God cannot choose for you. That's the right exercise of the will, friends. It's called surrender. Choosing the very thing that God cannot choose for us because without surrender, without surrender, we remain self-sufficient. Without surrender, we keep Jesus outside the door. And what's more, according to the rest of this verse, if surrender really is this opening of the heart to Jesus then the result, the outflow of opening our hearts to Jesus is in the rest of verse 20. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, or we can put, if anyone hears my voice and actually surrenders, chooses the very thing that God cannot choose for us, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Friends, this, in Near Eastern culture, sharing a meal is a big deal. I mean, in our, in, our, in, our, excuse me, in our culture, we kind of have this sense that, you know what, uh, we don't just invite anybody over to our house for a meal. The people that we have over to our house are people that 
we either have genuine bonds of, of relationship with or we want genuine bonds of relationship with, right? You follow that? But even more so, actually, in that Near Eastern culture, it was, it was hugely significant to actually have someone at your house for a meal. You remember that story, Zacchaeus, a wee little man, right? Climbed up in a sycamore tree. When Jesus found him, what did he tell him? I'm going to your house today. And everybody else around just gets thrown into a ruckus. Why? Because going to his house was a big deal. It was called acceptance. It was called the hand of fellowship. It was intimacy. And all the self-righteous, self-sufficient Laodicean Pharisees thought to themselves, there are better things he can do with his time, right? And here's Jesus. He says, look, if you hear my voice and actually open the door, if you hear my voice and actually surrender, you and I are going to share communion. You and I are going to share the right hand a fellowship. You and I are going to be intimate. So Jesus says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. I want us to think about this. This, this experience of communion that's contingent upon surrender. You know, we, we, we talk about, or maybe you've shared with others about or you know we 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 encourage each other to spend one-on-one time with jesus right we encourage each other to have personal worship we have personal devotions time alone with god quiet time is this important yes or no yes why because jesus isn't just into um, a group dating relationship with us right (laughs) jesus actually wants one-on-one you and me time right and that's valuable but I, I, what I want to just draw a distinction in our minds is when I'm talking about a surrender that leads to personal communion, I'm actually talking about something much deeper than time alone with God. Because, here, here's what I mean, because it's very possible to have regular, consistent devotions and actually not have personal communion with God. There, there is a way to actually, you know, read my Bible, pray every day, and actually treat it like a checklist and say, I have everything I need, and I need nothing else. I don't want to devalue personal devotions with God, time alone with God, because, friends, this is what we need. And I would submit that, it's, that having that time alone with God daily, having that, that experience where I'm communing with him, communicating with him, he's communicating with me, having that experience daily actually puts us in the prime position to actually surrender. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, and so here, Jesus is actually, he wants us to get to the point, not where we're just going through the motions of having these regular habits, but where we take those regular habits and use that as an opportunity to finally open the door, to choose to surrender, to place our will in his will. Again, it's not about willpower, it's about placing our will in his power. And so here, Jesus wants us to to respond. He wants us to, to have this time with him that will lead to a genuine surrender to him. And when we genuinely surrender, will have personal communion, fellowship with the Creator. But the key is this, that we'll never surrender, we'll never come to that point where we open the door if we don't first hear His voice, right? That's where the value of personal devotions comes because it it puts us in a position where we're listening. It puts us in a position where, where we can actually respond by opening the heart door. And so this experience of surrender, it's actually tied to being able to hear God's voice. And according to this context, according to this message, it's hearing the fact, or I guess it's, it's hearing everything that preceded it, right? It's hearing the fact that, wait, I am not rich, and I don't have everything I need. It's hearing the fact that, wait, Jesus does have something that I don't already have. It's hearing the fact that I need a Savior, and His name is Jesus. So the bottom line, if we do hear His voice, 
if we do sense, wait a minute, I do need more than what I have. If we have that conviction in our hearts, then buy from Jesus. Then be zealous and repent. Then hear his voice and open that door. The result is that we will no longer be neutralized in our lukewarmth. The result of having personal communion with God, of of being fully surrendered to him, is that we will no longer be neutralized or rendered uh, helpless or ineffective by our spiritual pride and complacency. In other words, the result, our lukewarmth will light up. These three counsels, yet there's one ignition, (laughs) and that is to fully surrender to Jesus. So here's the recap. Let's just kind of put all the dots together, draw, draw it all out. We're lukewarm and ineffective because of our spiritual pride and overconfidence. Check? We, we understand that? Okay. The, the second part of the message is we need to know that we have a need. Okay? <laughs> we need to know we're in need. So we're lukewarm when we're overconfident and spiritually proud. We need to know our need. And when we hear that, we can finally follow the counsel of the triune God and open the heart door to him. We can finally buy from him. We can finally be zealous and repent. We can finally hear his voice and open the door. Remember, this is not a door that Jesus is going to pry open. Do you understand that today? Yes, he he has the key of David. He can open any door except the door that has no lock, (laughs) except the door that has no handle on the outside. And that door is our heart. It's up to us to surrender. Jesus is not going to coerce us to surrender. That's just not, that's not love, right? And so when we buy, when we repent, when we open that door, we make the exchange, we make the U-turn, we choose to surrender. And that choice to surrender opens opens the heart door to genuine and personal communion with the Savior. And in this context, it's, it's communion with the Creator and Recreator. So, simple question. How many of you want to be lit up? <laughs> How many of you want your lukewarmth to be turned around? Amen. A few questions here as we close our study today is, is there a door that is still closed. Is there a door, if you were to honestly search your heart and allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart, is there a door that is still closed? And if, if the door is personal surrender, then really, is there an area in which our lives are not surrendered to Jesus? That's what the real question is. Is there a way in which we haven't fully surrendered to the Savior? Is there a way in which we have been keeping Jesus at a distance? No, you're safe over there. Don't come too close. What cherished sin? What destructive habit? What addictive behavior? What godless relationship? What bitter grudge? What erroneous belief? Or nagging unbelief? What's the door that hasn't been opened? Jesus may have the key of David, but he's not going to choose to open that door himself. These are doors that we need to open ourselves. These are doors that we need to hear his voice and say, yes, I surrender. You know, that song, we've sung it before, it doesn't say, I surrender some, right? You know, we, we've gone through this exercise before. I surrender just the things that are comfortable to me. Jesus is asking, is there a door that's still closed? And if there is, then why not open it and why not now? Right? Friends, uh, I mentioned this earlier. There is a decision that lies only within our power. Jesus is not going to make that decision for us. So what is it for you? What is it for you? Two simple take-home challenges, okay? Two simple take-home challenges. There are some areas in your life where the Holy Spirit, even now as we've been speaking and studying, there are some areas in your life where you sense that the Holy Spirit is saying, look, this is a closed door. 
and you know that you need to be zealous and repent. Throughout this week, here's my specific appeal, number one. Throughout this week, take time alone with God, okay? Why? Because that's where we will hear his voice and have the chance to respond and surrender, okay? So throughout this week, if you're not already in the habit, take 15 minutes of tag time, T-A-G, time alone with God, okay? Take 15 minutes in the Bible and in prayer, and maybe if you need suggestions, in the Psalms and in the Gospels, okay? And allow Jesus to speak about the doors that are closed and actually give him the open door. 15 minutes, tag time, allow Jesus to tell you what doors need to be open. How many of you are willing to say, yes, I'll take that time to hear his voice and open the door? Amen. Amen. Okay, praise the Lord. Second appeal, a little bit more specific, may not necessarily apply to everyone. But the second appeal is this. You realize that your door is closed, that you've kept Jesus outside, even though you've believed right, done right, taught right, etc. And you've still kept Jesus at a distance. The only thing that stands between him and personal communion with you is your choice to surrender. And friend, maybe today you're here and you're saying, yes, <laughs> I know exactly what I need to surrender. And you desire to surrender that. You're sensing the conviction of the Holy Spirit to surrender that. And you're actually sensing the conviction of the Holy Spirit to demonstrate that surrender through baptism or rebaptism. Okay, that's the specific appeal today. And I'm wondering today, if that is you, then why not take time this week to start preparing for baptism someday? Maybe you don't have a date set in mind. Hey, it's August 30. We've got the whole fall quarter left before the end of the year. Why not this week? If you're sensing that baptism or rebaptism is what the Holy Spirit uh, is, is, is wanting to move in your life, why not this week? Let's meet together, you and me. Okay? And, and we'll, we'll walk through the preparation process to baptism. Now, I'm making this specific appeal. And some of you are saying, yeah, that's me. And some of you are needing to look for my cell phone number in the church bulletin right now, okay? Some of you, if you want, go ahead and start texting me right now. I'm giving you permission to start texting me right now about your availability this week, okay? But if that's you, I would just encourage you to stand because I want to pray for you, all right? If there's someone here today that's saying, yeah, I need to fully surrender to God, that, you know, this door, that door, this door, all doors, and I, I want to start preparing for baptism. Who is it? I, I just want to encourage you to stand right now because I want to pray for you. Okay? I want to pray for you. Amen. Praise the Amen, brother. Amen. All right. 661-330-4905. All right? I'll be calling you. You call me. And we'll start this process together. Praise the Lord. Is there more? Is there more? Maybe the Holy Spirit is moving even now. Baptism or rebaptism, and the truth is, if you've heard His voice, the only natural response is to open that door. I'm not saying that next week we're going to fill up the, the tank. Maybe it is. Maybe it is next week. Okay. What I'm saying is that in this week we're going to start preparing. We're going to set a date like we would for a marriage. You know, you set the wedding date and you start preparing for it. It's hard. It's hard to make preparations when you have no wedding date in mind, right? Okay, so that's, that's, that's what we're going to... Praise the Lord, brothers. Amen. Is there anyone else? Is there anyone else? Who wants to respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction right now? Amen. Like I said, you know where my phone number is. <laughs> and I just praise the Lord that, you know, He's never done with us. He's never done with us. And so, I want to pray specifically for my brothers who stood in the back. And for any of us who are still making this commitment to, to say, yeah, there are doors that need to be opened. So let's bow our heads together as we pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much that you are the amen, the faithful, the true witness. And that even when you're speaking straight to our hearts, 
Uh, even though it, that makes us cringe at times, we realize that it's because you love us. God, you're the one who devised this cure, and we want to, we want to surrender. Father, I pray for those who raised their hands and said, I want to take daily time to hear his voice so I can make that decision to open the door. Lord, I pray against the schemes of the enemy, that the things that he will try to do to, uh, to flood us with so much activity, to flood us with so many concerns that we become physically and emotionally drained, that we cannot spend time with you. Lord, I pray that when the enemy comes in like a flood, you would raise up a standard against him. And so, Lord, guard that tag time with you. Please, please, cause us to hear your voice when we come to that time with you. Don't let us just, don't let us just go through the motion. May we pray like Jacob. We will not let you go until you bless us. Amen. Lord, I want to pray specifically for my brothers who stood for their decision to, to be rebaptized or baptized. And, and God, I pray that you would place a hedge of protection right now. I thank you for the angels that rejoice right now. I thank you for the visual of, of the Savior doing cartwheels in heaven over the decisions that are being made. And Lord, I pray that nothing would stand in the way of these desires to turn into action. Lord, if there are others who are still making that decision, I pray for them too. And I ask that your will would be done and that you would open up the channels of communication so that we can make preparation in due time. Thank you, Father, for what you're going to do. Thank you that, that the life of full surrender is the best life ever. Thank you that the life with Jesus is all that we need. And so we pray these things in Jesus' saving name. Let the family say, amen, amen. God bless you guys. Uh, there's fellowship lunch here immediately following. Actually, there's also a time of prayer. If anyone needs special prayer, there's a, a small group here that meets for special prayer. You're welcome to join them for that. God bless you.